Thank you, Blake and the praise team. Open your Bibles if you have them to Colossians chapter 2, 11 to 14 is where we'll be this morning. Colossians chapter 2 will be in 11 to 14 this morning. It's come to my attention in the prayer, I left out a kid. So I left out Catherine, and I'm sorry. I did not mean to. That was not my intention at all. And I'm thankful that the Lord knows all of your names. So uh, forgive me. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, 11 to 14 is where we're going to be this morning. Well, we've all uh, been a part of a wedding ceremony at some point. I'm sure most all of us at least have. I have officiated weddings. I have been the groom in a wedding. I've been a groomsman in a wedding. I have been a participant in the congregation in a wedding. And every time I go, I dread going. I'm just kidding. That's not true. I don't dread going. No. They're joyous occasions, and we're all happy to be there, and it's a, it's a wonderful celebration. And in the wedding ceremony, in every, in, at least in America, in most every wedding ceremony, there's going to be, at, toward the end of the ceremony, the exchanging of rings. I remember quite well, uh, getting near graduation from, from college, I had not two nickels to rub together. I was working a job. Uh, that job went toward my apartment and all my uh, living expenses and all those kinds of things. I didn't have uh, anything to my name. And so I went into the jewelry store and I'm looking for a ring to give to uh, Andrea. And, and she tells me what the cost is going to be. And I'm like, oh, that's probably more than I can afford. And she was like, well, what can you afford? And I said, well, I've got, um, I've got like $5 and a stick of bubble gum. Uh, is that enough? Uh, no, that's, that's not at all. And I remember going to my dad and asking him, I, I need something. I need help uh, paying for this wedding ring. The wedding ring is, is, it turns out, incredibly important. I didn't think about this as I'm going to get married, but the wedding ring, you'll hear at almost every ceremony, every wedding ceremony, they hold up the wedding ring and they say, look at the, the, the perfect circle of the wedding ring. It symbolizes the continual love that these two will have towards each other. And of course, you buy the wedding ring that you're going to give to your significant other and you slip it on their finger as a sign of your enduring love. But at no part... During that wedding ceremony, are we ever confused that the wedding ring is itself the marriage? At no point in the wedding are we ever concerned that, oh, if the, if the ring doesn't somehow make it on the finger, if it falls off, that that's a bad omen for the marriage. My daughter thinks this. As she sits in my lap, she plays with my wedding ring, and she wants to put it on. And I say, no, I can't take it off my finger. And she says, well, if you do, then I, if I can put it on my finger, then I'll be married to mommy. She does the same thing to, to Andrea. She sits on her lap, well, then I'll be married. to. But of course, that's not what we think about the rings. Instead, those rings are a sign of an already present reality. It's an already present reality. Those rings are a sign of that present reality. This morning, we're going to be in the eighth sermon in our series on worship. And we're considering baptism this morning. Now, for anybody that's visiting our church, I want to take just a second to, 
to, to say that this is not the norm, that what we're going to do this morning and what we've been doing for the last eight weeks is not the normal diet of what we go through on a Sunday morning. Typically, we've been going through the book of Matthew, paragraph by paragraph, if you will, verse by verse um, through the book. We're entering into chapter 11 and we're going into a new section where understanding worship is going to be really important. And so for us, I wanted to take a step back and talk about some of the things that have been added to our worship service over the course of the last two years. Because as we've added those things, a lot lot may have questions as to why we pray this way, or why why we do this particular thing, or why we do that. And so as we've talked about worship, I wanted to just go through and dissect every element of the worship service and explain why that is there and what purpose it serves. And so this morning is going to be slightly different. As we consider baptism, when you go to the scriptures, our understanding for baptism is broad. It's across all of the New Testament. There are lots of passages that speak on baptism. But when it comes to the full meaning of baptism, it's not always expounded in just one passage. And so for us this morning, we're going to be dealing mostly with one passage, but we're going to jump around a little bit. Where the verses don't occur in the passage that you've just turned to, they should appear on the screen behind me. So with that in mind, I want to read um, from our text this morning in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. And then as we go, I'll clue you in as to what scripture we're going to be looking at uh, more closely. So uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the power and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would teach us from your word by the work of your spirit already present here with us and within us. Lord, we pray that you would empower us by the very same Spirit at work within us to repent from sin and to live a life that is consecrated to you as we have already indicated in our baptism. We pray that we would make it true in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, in our society, um, baptism can be seen on a multitude of fronts by varying groups of people, both inside the church and outside the church. Sometimes baptism can be viewed as one of those unnecessary rituals that people participate in, though nobody knows why. It's a bit outdated, if you ask me. This shouldn't be the way we do it. Do we really have to go forward in baptism? That has nothing to do with me and my personal relationship with Jesus. Now, I should just say that there's every expectation in Scripture that a Christian would be baptized by immersion in the waters of baptism before the church. There's no category in the Bible nor in church history for a Christian that, has, that does not want to go into baptism. But this is kind of an attitude that some people will have in our culture from time to time. 
Or on the other end, it can, it can, uh, it can be some, something that feels like a, a safeguard for people and their children. And we see this a number of times when uh, the culture goes to have their baby christened. We'll see this. They'll take their baby for christening. They'll never set foot in that church again. They haven't before that day. But by golly, we are going to show up to have our child christened because this is somehow important. It's magic water, I suppose. But then we also see this definitely inside the Baptist church, even as Christian parents think about their own children. Many times we think, well, even though my child has nothing to do with God anymore, after he left my home or after she left my home, they walked out completely denying Christ ever, ever since. They've never set foot in a church again since that day. It still puts me at ease remembering that there was a time when he was baptized. Right? It gives us some sort of confidence as if that was somehow magical and it didn't mean anything after that for this person. Well, this morning we're going to see the Three things I think that baptism represents. So there's three big things that baptism represents. And underneath each point about what baptism represents, there's two subpoints that we're going to look at as well. So this is, this, is a, this is a professional Baptist sermon, okay? Three big points and subpoints underneath that uh, we need to take note of. Um, so, but my hope is that as we think about baptism, what it is, that we can, as a church body, Come together in understanding what it is and what it's not, but then also restore and ultimately safeguard baptism within the church body as we proclaim the gospel. So the first thing that baptism represents, baptism represents a confession of belief. Baptism represents a confession of belief. And I think this is obviously the, the most obvious, I think, aspect of baptism for us as Parents, there may be nothing more desirous or more valuable or more uh, something that we anticipate more than having our child come to us at some point and say, I believe in Jesus. That's the point where we all inside, we hope for, we desire for, we long for that day when our child comes to us. Paul seems to affirm what the rest of the Bible already says that baptism is association with a confession. You're confessing something. And the first thing that you're confessing, this would be the first subpoint, is the confession of a Trinitarian God. The first, the first is the confession in baptism. It's necessarily Trinitarian. And what that means is that in baptism, the one being baptized is confessing a belief in the power of the triune God that we worship, who is Father, Son, and Spirit. And we know this, of course, first from Matthew 28, Jesus' famous commission of his disciples. And he, as he gets ready to depart, he leaves them with the great commission in Matthew 28, 19, where he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now look in our passage at the direction that your faith takes 
toward each member of the Trinity. Each, I think all three of them are present in this baptismal language that Paul uses here in Colossians chapter 2. And so first, the first thing that we see is obviously God the Son is there, the second person of the Trinity and the person of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 11, It is in Him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So in other words, it's through faith in Christ that your heart is circumcised. It's the tool, if you will, that, your, that circumcises your heart, is your faith precisely in Christ. The circumcision of the heart means that it's, it's conformed, it's made into a covenant-keeping heart. And that happens through faith in none other than the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in this whole passage of chapter uh, of verse 11 through verse 15, actually, um, this whole thing is about the, the satisfaction that we have in Jesus Christ and ultimately the sufficiency of Christ for our salvation. And I preached this some number of months ago as we went through Colossians. I preached Colossians 2, uh, 11 through 15, and the sermon was entitled, The Sufficiency of Christ. Because the whole thing that Paul is expounding on for several passages is the sufficiency of Christ for salvation. So the whole thing really is about Christ and his work of atoning for us, his atoning sacrifice. So this appears to be the most obvious aspect of our confession of faith. We are confessing in baptism, we're confessing a belief in Christ. But faith is also in God the Father. And that also appears there in our text if you look in verse 12. He says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in what? In the powerful working of God, that is God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Think about this for a moment, about the image of baptism. Someone is going into the water, and then they're coming out again. And Paul says that our faith is not only placed in Christ as the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but it's placed in God the Father. And why? Because just as God the Father raised Christ from the dead, we are also putting our faith that God will raise us from the dead as He raised Christ. The hope of the Christian is in the eventual resurrection of the dead by the power of God at the call of Christ when He returns. That's the hope of the Christian. Those who are dead, whose souls have gone to be with the Lord and whose bodies have gone into the grave to rot will be called up from the grave and reunited body and soul. And those who are still here, who are still alive, will be transformed into a body fit for eternity. Christians have never believed that we are to exist forever in a disembodied state. We have never believed that. Some Christians today believe that is the ultimate destiny for the Christian is that they die, the body goes away, it rots. That wasn't the important part anyway. It's like the peeling of a banana. And the inside is the most important part. That goes to be with the Lord forever. And then that's the end of it. That is not the end of it. That's an intermediate state 
We are created body and soul and meant to be body and soul. And Christ will return and raise the dead. And our faith in baptism, what we're putting our faith in is that as we come up out of the water, it's a picture that God who raised Christ from the dead, I am trusting will raise me from the dead one day. I am putting my faith in God the Father and his power to raise me from the dead as he did Jesus. So our faith is in Christ as the all-sufficient sacrifice for our sin, and we are confessing that about him in baptism, but we are also confessing our faith in God the Father and his power to one day raise us from the dead. But what about the Holy Spirit? Well, admittedly, the words Holy Spirit don't occur in this passage. However, look again at verse 11 and what he says about Christ by virtue of what we have in Christ. He says, in Christ you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now to be circumcised in the Old Testament is essentially the same thing as saying that I am included in the people of God. That's what that means. If I'm circumcised in the Old Testament, it means that I am included in the people of God. But throughout the Old Testament, We see it mostly in the prophets, but it's throughout the Old Testament. And then eventually in the New Testament, we see that circumcision of heart actually starts to take precedence. Once we start to see the stubbornness of the hearts of the people of Israel, and what we see then is a promise that one day God will circumcise the hearts of his people. And what he's referring to is that not only would the people be physically included in the people of God, but that they would be spiritually included, that they would actually want to be a part of the people of God, that they would desire in their heart to follow after God's commandments, that they would desire with everything to follow after, that they're not just paying lip service to being a part of the people of God. They're not just bearing the marks of circumcision so as to be included in a group. They don't just merely bear those physical marks, but they actually desire in their heart to follow after it. Paul actually talks about the source of the heart-level circumcision, and he says it in Romans 2, 28 to 29. It should appear on the, on the screen behind me. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, by physical circumcision, that is. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. How? By the Spirit not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So Paul clearly uh, says here that circumcision of the heart is done by the Holy Spirit. Elsewhere, you would see this called new birth, maybe. Jesus calls it in John chapter 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus. At night, he calls him being born again. He says being born again. Nicodemus has no idea what he's talking about. But whatever you want to call it, it precedes the actual profession of faith that comes out of the mouth of a Christian. Then Paul seems to be pretty clear here. He says, you were circumcised without hands, having been buried with him in baptism. So baptism then is a confession of Christ as the only sacrifice for our sins that can atone for our sins. It's a confession of God the Father to raise us from the dead one day with the same power that he raised Christ, but it's also a confession that the Holy Spirit has circumcised your heart. That's what you're standing in the water doing. 
You're saying to everyone everywhere in front of the church, the Lord has circumcised my heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit because we are confessing belief in a triune God. In other words, we're standing in the water and we're saying, the Trinitarian God of all creation has come to my aid and has saved me. But there's another thing that we're confessing as well. Our confession is also associating with Christ's death and resurrection. We're confessing Christ's death and resurrection. This would be sub-point two, under point one. If you're following along at home. The picture of baptism is is that the one being baptized is going into the water and he is depicting for everyone being buried with Christ. You get that? He is depicting being buried with Christ in his baptism. Look at verse 12. Paul says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him. You are associating with Christ. It's signifying that our stance in life is identifying with Christ, the dead and resurrected Christ. And so you're claiming Christ's death for you. You're confessing that Jesus is the only way to salvation. That's what you're saying in baptism. He's the only way to salvation. Christ's death paid for my sins. His resurrection will be mine in the future. You are acting out the gospel as you go down into the water and you come up and you're saying that this gospel applies to me and it's the only way that one can be saved. In a Christian wedding, two people come to the altar and they stand before the pastor on one side and they have the congregation on the other side as they face each other. And by merely being there at the altar, the two getting married are confessing something about the other person. I mean, they're basically saying, well, they're saying implicitly, this person is marriage material. I love this person. I care for this person. This person is marriage material. They confess their love for one another in the vows that they exchange between each other. And then at the end of the service, they demonstrate the love that they have just confessed. How do they do it? With a handshake? No. With a high five? No. With a kiss? Why? Because a kiss in our culture is the most appropriate public display of affection that when others see it, they say, she belongs to him, he belongs to her. It's association. It's a promise. And it's similar with baptism. The one being baptized is confessing belief in the Trinitarian God that we worship, and then he's associating, or she is associating with the death of the second person of the Trinity by going through the visual process before everyone else. You're essentially saying, remember Jesus who went into the grave and was resurrected? I'm part of his bride. Now, some will stop there. Some will say, well, my son or daughter, they have confessed to me 
that uh, they believe in Jesus. And so it's time to get baptized, right? Let's do it. Let's set a date. But there's more to it than that. So point number two, baptism represents a change of lifestyle. Baptism represents a change of lifestyle. Look at verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Earlier in verse 11, he says that as a result of the Spirit's work in circumcising your heart, you are putting off the body of the flesh. So there are two really powerful aspects to this change of lifestyle that are signified in baptism. The first is repentance of sin. So this would be point number two, sub point one. The first is repentance of sin. Repentance of sin is the act of turning from sin and to righteousness. But in the waters of baptism, the reason that the person in the water has to identify with Christ's death and resurrection is precisely because that person standing in the water is a sinner. It's precisely because that person standing in the water is a sinner. And up until that point that they come to faith in Christ, sin is their only option. It's the only option on the table. is a lifestyle of sin. But in the waters of baptism, they're saying, as Paul says here, that the Holy Spirit has circumcised my heart and I have been dead in my trespasses and sins and in the uncircumcision of my flesh. But now... By the Spirit's power, I want to put off the body of flesh by depicting myself dying, being drowned in water. Now, we try to pull them up before the bubbles stop, okay, just to be clear. But that's the picture. That's the image, that you're dying before you come back up. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, Paul says this. It should appear on the screen behind me. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Well, that sounds pretty bleak because we've all got a little bit of every one of those things in us to some degree. But then listen to what he says in verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were what? Washed. You were washed you are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The Trinity is there in uh, that text. He's giving a picture of what happens in baptism. He's saying this is a reality of what is now true of you. Let me be clear. Lest anyone have any confusion. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone. Not by baptism. But baptism is the picture of that saving faith. It's how that saving faith goes public, if you will. It's how the Christian stands before the church and gives a testimony to whom and to what they're associating their life with. And to the fact that they're repenting of sin. 
And so Paul says this about his own baptism in Acts 22. Ananias, he's recounting how Ananias came to him when he was blind and and basically shared the gospel with him or spoke with him. And Ananias, he recounts, says this to him in Acts 22, 16. He says, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. What does he mean there, that the water actually has some spiritual component to it that washes away his sins? No, this is obviously not what he's saying. It doesn't literally wash away your sins, but it's a a picture of the repentance that one is going through, changing from darkness to light. But the second part of the change in lifestyle, this would be subpoint two, is walking in newness of life. That you're not just repenting of your sins, but you're promising to walk in newness of life. You're making a pledge before everyone that you're going to walk in newness of life. This is obviously implied in our passage where Paul says in verse 13, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The implication there is that you can no longer walk in these sins because God has forgiven them in Christ and he has killed them in Christ's cross. Paul says it another way in Romans 6, 4. We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Listen to that. Just as Christ was raised for the dead, from the dead, we also might walk in newness of life. In this passage, uh, Paul says that God made us alive. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.21 that in baptism, we're making an appeal. We're making a pledge. We're making a, a vow, if you will, to God for a clean conscience. So it's effectively the same notion. What's happening in baptism is that a people is being formed. In baptism, a people are being brought together. A people who are made alive. A people who are pledging to walk in newness of life. But what does it mean to walk in newness of life? We know after Christ was raised from the dead, He walked in newness of life. And Paul's saying that in baptism, we receive the Holy Spirit, we walk following Christ in newness of life, in that same newness of life. So what does it mean then? Well, just as Christ experienced life after he was raised from the dead. So that means that the covenant community of baptized believers are pledging to live life with others now. The way we will live it in eternity. We're pledging to live life now with the covenant community of believers and with the world around us, the way we will live in eternity. That is the pledge. That's a tall order. But that's what we're pledging to do with one another in baptism, is walking with others in the manner that we will walk in eternity. And that means what? That means a lifestyle of repentance is going to be necessary. Because we're going to walk all over each other. We're going to step in front of each other. We're going to cut each other off. 
We're going to get mad at each other. We're going to want to do each other in. We're going to sin against each other. So it means that a lifestyle of repentance is necessary, and our baptism is our pledge that we're going to strive in that direction by the power of the Holy Spirit. When the bride and groom are at the altar, they're forced to make vows to one another. They say, I promise to love you from this day forward for better or for worse in sickness and in health till death parts us. I would like to point out, as we use the metaphor for getting married, we have two people in our congregation who are going to get married this coming weekend on Saturday. Grace and Lucas right there on the third row back here in the center. You can just raise your hand. You can give them a look. Oh, yeah. Ironically, Grace will also be getting baptized in a few weeks. So it all kind of comes together. So this is kind of for you. Don't fall asleep. Um, but they're saying when they're standing at the altar, as they're about to do, I promise to love you from this day forward for better or worse in sickness and in health till death parts us. Now, but what would you think about a couple that got married? came together at the altar that made all those vows and pledges and then went home and they still lived in different places. They still had separate bank accounts. They had separate groups of friends. They actually never saw each other again after that day. And they still lived like they were single. Would you say that they were married? I don't think so. I don't think any of us would say that that's marriage. They're still living like single people. Well, so too baptism. It comes with a pledge. It's not just a confession of faith in Jesus. It's not just a Trinitarian confession. Certainly it is those things. But as the wedding ceremony is also a confession. But it's more than that too. It's a pledge toward a lifestyle of married devotion. I'm promising to live this lifestyle out. But then many of us will stop there. Okay, baptism is a Trinitarian confession, of course. Baptism is a confession in Jesus Christ as Lord. We're associating with Him in His, in his death and His resurrection, of course. I'm asking for forgiveness of sin. I'm, I'm pledging to walk in a lifestyle of walking in faith. But that's it, right? No, there's more. Third point, baptism represents a commitment of community. Baptism represents a commitment of community. Now, part of the difficulty in preaching on baptism is that our understanding of baptism comes from all over the Scriptures, as I said, not merely one passage. And although the previous two points that I've said are right there, I think you'll see in Colossians 2, this point requires us to kind of look broader in the rest of Scripture in different places to see um, where, where this actually comes from and what Paul says in other places about uh, baptism. But I'll bet you, even if you considered the other two points already, even if you had thought, yeah, that's what I thought baptism was, that this last point has probably skipped your notice. And if I'm going to receive any pushback on baptism, it's going to be right here probably in this point. Mainly because a society as a whole has shifted toward individualism and autonomy to the point that we even see baptism as my choice. That's, that's my decision. 
I confessed Christ. I'm promising to live a life of repentance. So what's the holdup? What does the church have to consider in all of this? And we forget that we don't baptize ourselves. You realize that? In the Great Commission, Jesus is entrusting the disciples and all of those who have the Spirit after them to safeguard baptism, that it maintain its Trinitarian nature, that it maintain its confession, that it maintain its repentance of sin. In the baptismal waters, there is a pastor standing there in the water on behalf of an entire church body that has affirmed this person in the water. These people who have congregational authority over who, ba- who is baptized and who is not. So the first thing that is, the first aspect of this commitment of community is that baptism is initiation into membership into Jesus' body. Baptism is initiation into membership in Jesus' body. I want you to consider what Galatians 3, 27 and 28 says as an example. It says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's saying you have all been brought into the body of Christ. There are other verses like this where Paul brings it, makes this point, like uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, basically saying the same essential point that baptism is membership or initiation into membership in Jesus' body. And you might think about the book of Acts, where it reports several times that, as, uh, especially early on in the book, that the Lord was adding to their number those that were being saved. Well, how was he adding to their number those who were being saved? Well, just a few verses before that, Peter had told the crowd, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Through repentance and baptism, as Peter had told them to do. That's how they were added to the number of the body. As circumcision was a sign on the eighth day um, that a baby was born into a covenant-keeping family in ancient Judaism, so baptism, like circumcision, is initiation into the church. However, though we love our Presbyterian brothers and sisters who sprinkle babies or like to baptize babies, We believe that circumcision, just as circumcision followed birth, baptism follows new birth, not birth. It follows new birth. And so it should always follow new birth. We we don't have any example in the Old Testament, not any clear example in the New Testament of any children, much less babies, being baptized. And so all of the signs in the Bible point to a belief that is then followed by baptism, a belief by an individual. But the second and most challenging concept in this, I think, to grasp is that baptism represents a commitment of community because in baptism, the unrepentant sinner receives community forgiveness. That's hard to think about, and it's, it's especially in our modern church context, the concept of church discipline has fallen completely out of favor. 
But it's hard, it's difficult to wrap our minds and grasp this concept. That shouldn't come as any surprise to you that church discipline would fall out of favor in our church context because largely speaking across our culture, discipline has fallen out of favor. Church discipline, as, it's def- as I would define it, and it's going to appear on the screen behind, you, on, behind me so you don't have to worry about um, keeping up with my definition, but ch- church discipline is the process whereby church members of a local congregation hold an unrepentant sinner's immorality against him. And they vote to remove him from the church's membership and fellowship. So the church is actually acting in a disciplinary way over this person's access to church membership and church fellowship. I can't imagine why this has fallen out of favor in a modern church context. I mean, can you? That that a church would actually come together and have to do this? It feels harsh. It feels heavy-handed. It feels hypocritical, maybe. Why would I hold someone else's sin against them and hold their feet to the fire when I really don't want anybody picking up the rug in my house? I really don't want people to come after me. I've heard it described as a witch hunt. While it was very common in the first 1900 and plus years of the church, it's fallen out of favor more recently. And at the same time, the, the modern church has a difficult time understanding texts like Matthew 18, 18, which says, Jesus saying to his disciples, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Boy, is that a complicated passage. Or how about John twenty twenty three? If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What on earth is Jesus talking about there? Is he actually giving to the apostles the permission to forgive sins? Is he giving them the authority to forgive sins? Really? Is that what we believe about the apostles? See, it wasn't just the apostles. We look in 1 Corinthians 5, we have an example of a man caught in sin, and Paul tells the church in verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. And then in verse 5, he gets even harsher, and he says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, so that he come to repentance. The church in Corinth, by Paul's instruction, was to withhold the church community from him by removing him from church membership, kicking him out. It wasn't just the apostles that Jesus gave this authority to. It was the covenant community of Holy Spirit-indwelt Christians, the church We have this phrase in Baptist life called congregational authority. You might hear it called congregational rule sometimes. And if you ask many Baptists today what congregational rule is, they'll tell you that it means we have obligatory business meetings that are unnecessarily boring. Where we basically decide how many paper clips should be purchased and things like that. But that's not actually the authority that the Bible is actually championing for the local church. 
The Bible is championing the local church by the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells each member to act on behalf of the kingdom of heaven by reflecting God's actual will in a given situation, particularly in regards to membership and baptism. That's congregational rule. That's why we vote on people joining our church. That's why we vote on people being baptized because all of us that are Holy Spirit indwelt, baptized believers who have confessed a Trinitarian God, who have associated their life with Christ, who have been buried with Him in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life, who have made a pledge that they will live a life of eternity now, are coming together and they're asking the question, is this person that stands before us a Christian? Do we believe that this person is confessing the same Christ we do? We're safeguards to baptism. Safeguarding church membership. So that means when a person presents themselves for membership in the church, that it's the congregation's responsibility to examine the person's life. Not just the pastor's. It's the congregation's responsibility to examine a person's life, to look at their testimony, to look at the fruit that is produced. And so long as the congregation is believing that this person meets the criteria of a Christian, we are responsible to validate their membership in the body of Christ. We are an embassy of the kingdom of heaven to stamp the passport of an authentic citizen of God's kingdom. So when an unbeliever comes forward in baptism, it's the church's responsibility granted by Christ to analyze the fruit that has been produced by this individual, to look at their testimony of faith, the belief about Jesus. Are they confessing Trinitarian belief? Are they identifying with Christ as the only atoning sacrifice capable of delivering them from death and granting them eternal life? Are they committing to live a life of repentance? Do I see evidence that they're walking in newness of life? Are they submitting to pastoral authority and the church's authority to discipline them should they run headlong into sin? Those of you that are concerned that in the next generation the church is going to fall away should really be paying attention to this. Because the way that we're going to keep and ensure that the church doesn't fall away into false doctrine is you making sure that the people that come forward for baptism, for membership, are confessing this. Fruit is evident in their life. If that's so, then the church is responsible to reflect the will of heaven by pronouncing that person a member of their church and a member of the body of Christ. And so what is the result of that? What is the result of a person being a member of the body of Christ? Well, the result is that a person receives the teaching of biblical doctrine. They receive the benefit of other members watching their back in regards to sin, crouching at their door that they've been previously unaware of. The benefit that they receive is a shell, as as it were, a protection from the flaming arrows that Satan would cast at them. The church becomes that protecting arm. Hence what Paul says, deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. 
Once that covenant community is removed from him, once that biblical teaching is removed from him, he's going to face full on the attacks of Satan without the church to guard him and help him. We go to a wedding. We watch all of this take place. And many of us there are there to clap, are there to congratulate the couple that's getting married, like we just did. Many of us do the same thing in baptism. Someone's baptized, we bring the cameras, we want to clap for them. The congregants at a wedding and at a baptism are very important because they communicate essentially the same thing. We're going to hold you to that vow. That vow that you're making in front of all of us, we remember it. Amen. And we're going to hold you to it. Amen. What does this mean for us? First, baptism is a sign of a spiritual reality. It's a confession. It's a change of lifestyle. It's a commitment of a community around you. But it means that when people come forward for baptism, especially if that's our children, we should look first for fruit in the believer's life. And what that's going to mean for you parents is to take things slowly. Don't presume that you know your child's heart simply because they've confessed one time they believe in Christ. Every six weeks we pass the plate in here for the Lord's Supper. We have our children integrated into our worship service mostly, especially on Lord's Supper days, and that plate is going to pass by them. It is natural that that child is going to ask you, why can't I take the bread? Why can't I take the juice? Why is that not for me? Those questions are great. They give you one more opportunity to share the gospel with your child. To explain to them what I've just explained is the importance of baptism. But remember that it's not merely a confession. It certainly is that. And anytime your child comes to you and says, I believe in Jesus, your response should be, praise God. I'm so grateful. But then test the fruit. Look for the fruit produced in that child's life. Encourage them in growth. Encourage them to live a life consecrated to the Lord. And most importantly, the church needs to see that as well in the life of your child. We're not in any danger of taking it slowly, but we can do great harm to children. We baptize them early. I have had conversations with countless adults across the desk for me in tears over the fact that they were baptized very early and did not know what they were doing. And as we have gone on in our culture, the age of baptism has decreased, and I don't think it has helped the church at all. So I stand here really taking the point of view of your great-grandparents <laughs> who baptized much later on in life. As they're getting into their teenage years, as they're starting to make decisions independent of their parents, you begin to see the fruit produced in their life of faith. It means that you should attend members' meetings. If you're a member of this church, you should attend members' meetings. We're moving them to Sunday. They're going to be every eight weeks. 
So I would ask if you're part of a small group that meets on a Sunday night, just pause that night and come to the members' meetings. We're going to have a brief worship service for about 30 minutes, and then we're going to all take part in a members' meeting. We're going to talk about all kinds of things that are going on in the church, not just things we vote on, but this is how we safeguard Emmanuel Baptist Church from falling into heresy, false doctrine, and false teaching. Also, from accepting members that are not Christians. It means that what we do in a church is important. That your obligation is to the person sitting next to you. To the person that calls themselves a Christian. Your responsibility is to watch their back. To make them aware of sin. They may not, be noti- they may not notice that's crouching at their door. It also means for you individually, are you struggling with sin? Do you struggle regularly and mightily? Confess it. Tell the person sitting next to you. If that's your spouse, tell them. Allow them the opportunity to build you up, to encourage you, to challenge you, to push you toward trust in Christ. That is what we're here for as a body. Remember that the entire Godhead came to your aid in salvation as depicted in your baptism. And if he did that for you, he has not left you now. But he has given you a community around us. And in an era where everyone is concerned with church growth models, let's be more concerned with what it means to be an actual church. What's true of the baptized believer should be true of every member of this congregation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for fruit in our lives. Pray that we would be taking our vows seriously. That the promise that we made in baptism would flesh itself out in our daily life. Pray for our children. That as they hear the gospel preached, as they hear, as they see the plates of the Lord's Supper passed in front of us, as they ask questions about the gospel, may the continual preaching of the gospel and the visual sight of the gospel aid them in coming to faith. Pray, Father, that you would produce in our children merely the confession. We pray for that, that you would, but not merely that the desire to turn from sin, the desire to live a consecrated life, the desire to be held accountable by the people around us. Pray that we as a church body would be concerned with that primarily. And that we would preach the gospel far and wide, knowing that what we have here in Christ is a great appeal. In Jesus' name, amen.